Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You're listening to a Big Heads Media podcast. Tonight, I have nothing clever to say, but that's okay, because we have a lot to talk about. It's Freetown, Massachusetts, Part 1. All that and more on Small Town Secrets. Here we are, part one of the two-part season finale for season one, and we're talking about a big one, Freetown, Massachusetts. So big of a small town that there's a book, which is where I got most of the information from, I'll talk about it a little bit, and a documentary, which we'll probably be discussing more in the second episode, I think, but... It's a story, a town that I've liked for a long time. I've had the, the book forever, and a couple of moves have gone by, and I lost it. I had to buy it again. But hey, I got it on sale this time, so not a bad deal. Um, 
As some of you might know, or should know, this is the first episode of the new release schedule. show is going to be coming out on Saturdays for the time being. Um, I don't know. Let me just, I don't know. Let's go through it. Let me tell you what, what all has happened. So, I've been trying for like the last, I don't know, three years to claw my way back into some sort of design position, some sort of graphic position after I quit uh, my former job and moved out to California for a little bit and had to come back and that didn't work out too well. But f I finally have managed to get back in a place that's paying all right, that is a position that I want to be in and a place I want to be at. Um, it's a third shift gig. So I've been training. Here's what happened. Here's a great story. I went to, uh, it's for sublimation graphic design, which sublimation is uh, a way to print on t-shirts very quickly and effectively and also very cheaply. It involves printing them out on huge pieces of paper with a special ink that then it's steamed and the ink turns into vapor and the vapor gets transferred onto the t-shirt. And then it's, it's actually very interesting. But I had applied for the graphic designer position, which really isn't a graphic designer position. I'm just running this huge printer and making sure that it doesn't go haywire and, you know, break down and kill everyone. But beside that, I had accidentally applied for the production side and not the design position. Uh, so I went in for my interview, went through the interview, everything went great, and they offered me the job, and then the pay wasn't what it was supposed to be. And I was like, what is what's going on? And they were like, oh, well, you applied for the production assistant, the production side of things, which is actually making T-shirts. Um, well, not shirts, jerseys, sports jerseys for football teams, little league teams and stuff like that. And um, I was like, oh, well, I, have one, I, I wanted to apply for the design position, I told them. And they looked it up, and they were like, oh, it's been filled. But, you know, we're growing pretty quickly in that area. Take the production gig. You know, if you hang around for a little bit, chances are you're going to be able to get where you want to be. So I did that. And it was the second day I was there, the dude who was training on first shift to take the third shift position that I wanted uh, showed up drunk. His Or my second day there, I think it was like his like first week there or something. So he showed up drunk that morning on training. And uh, needless to say, he uh, did not last very long. So because of that, I was able to easily slide my way into that position. So I've been training on first for the last, well, week and a half. I started last week, whether that was 4th of July week, so it was only three days, and then this week for the full week, and then I'll be back on third. So that is the reason for the entire uh, schedule change, because like I said, now I can do it on Friday night. I can record it and edit it all in one big shot, hopefully, unless something goes terribly, terribly wrong and then get it out Saturday morning. So it'll be like a Saturday morning cartoon. Actually, it'll be nothing like a Saturday morning cartoon. But that is the situation. And so that's why I've been kind of quiet on social media. It's just been a lot of schedule changes. You know, I mean, I've been there. I've done stuff. I just haven't been as engaged on it as maybe I should have been. But all that is getting worked out. Everything's kind of settling down now. But uh, enough about that. Let's uh, talk about... Uh, some Freetown, Massachusetts stuff here in a little bit. But first, let's do a quick uh, promo for this week's featured podcast, which is going to be 
Drinkopedia. So give this a listen and uh, check them out. Hi, it's Audra, Jason, and Matt from Drinkopedia Podcast. We're a bad education podcast that's like drunk history for the full curriculum. We have new episodes every Thursday, and you can find us on most major podcast platforms. Join us at the bar and follow us on Twitter at Drinkopedia Pod. So please check them out and everyone else over at Big Heads Media. I will, of course, leave links in the show notes uh, to find those guys and to find Big Heads Media so that you can peruse even more podcasts for your listening pleasure. But let's move on. Uh, so like I said, today, tonight is going to be a two-part, the first of a two-part season finale. And we're talking about one town. So what I've done is I've taken uh, the research material that I'm using, which is Dark Woods by Christopher Balzano, which is a an entire book about Freetown, Massachusetts, and the area around Freetown, Massachusetts, some might call the Bridgewater Triangle. We'll get into that later. But I took the book and I kind of divided it up into the four pieces I wanted to talk about. I made sure I didn't want to talk about the entire book because it's actually a pretty good book. Like I said, I've had it a long time. I've had to rebuy it because I lost it. And uh, I, I wanted to leave some stuff in there for people to go and purchase the book and uh, discover on their own. But I found four segments to kind of uh, break up the two episodes into. So tonight, we're going to talk about a little bit of the history of the place because so many of the stuff that's going on, so many of the paranormal stuff that's going on is tied in so deeply with the history of the town and the Native Americans that used to live there and all of that. I felt that it was uh, worth getting into that a little bit. And then we're going to talk about some of the Native American uh, ghost sightings and stories so that's going to be part one of tonight's show, part one of part one. Part two of part one is going to be talking about the Freetown State Forest. And just, um, I'm going to say, I think three kind of locations in there that have strange happenings and high strangeness going on in and about them. And that's going to be tonight's episode. So next week, we will get into some more uh, true crimey stuff. There's some cult activity going on. And, and then we're going to talk about kind of the encompassing area that they call the Bridgewater Triangle. So there'll probably be some Bigfoot stuff, and, well, I think there's a swamp that we're going to get into. But that's next week. But let's go onward into segment one of episode 109 for Freetown Mass. We're going to talk about some uh, history and some Native American stuff. So let's get to it. The area around Freetown is known as the dumping ground of southeastern Massachusetts. It's been called that due to people just dumping unwanted cars in the Freetown State Forest during the gas crisis in the 1970s. Also, whatever junk anyone else felt like pitching into the woods at the time. But now all that is changing. Little by little, people are coming back to the area, cleaning it up, and making it something better, something stronger. However, there are things, experiences, and stories that will never go away. The first inhabitants to the Freetown area were the Wampanoag tribe. These Native Americans, however, never settled permanently in the area, but only used the land seasonally. When the English showed up, they saw the land as an investment. It was close to the water and chock full of resources. 
Sometime between 1614 and 1620, disease struck the Wampanoag tribe and struck them hard. It depleted their numbers from 12,000 down to just 2,000 or so. However, the neighboring tribe, the Naragonset, seemed untouched and untroubled by the sickness of the Wampanoag. This, combined with arriving English settlers, dwarfed their tribe and dwindled their military might. It would be the arriving English and their massive numbers that would become the real thorn in the side of the Wampanoag. It's the same old story. The British settlers came to the area and started pushing their own lifestyle and beliefs onto the Native Americans. Some of the Native Americans did convert to Christianity, but not many. Freetown was also settled in a rather dubious, deceitful, but not uncommon way. The English were known for tempting the Native Americans with products that they had never seen before, and using credit, and then using land as collateral. They would then limit the trapping and trade so the Native Americans could not repay the debt, and then take the land. The Wampanoag Sachem, or chief, at the time, Massawa, knew his people were being forced into a corner, but it was the only way to survive the onslaught of the British and the nearby tribes. Massawa's son, Sumta, also known as Alexander, took over as Sackham when Massanal died. He also inherited his father's debt, which included a bar tab. To repay the debt, he gave up 30 or so square acres. This would become Freetown. It would be the last major land purchase in the area between the Wampanoags and the English. In 1662, Alexander was brought before court. He and his remaining followers, ones who had not converted to Christianity, were marched up the coast at gunpoint. Alexander would start complaining about stomach pains and asked to go home. He would die before returning home. His wife, Otome, queen of the Paukesset tribe, and his brother, Metacom, or Philip, believed him to have been poisoned. I want to pause here one quick. Um, I'm not sure if her name is Watome or Matome. Uh, it's a typo in the book. It's spelled, it's the same person, but it's, it's sometimes it was spelled with a W and a couple of times it was spelled with an M. I'm going with Watome because, I don't know, that sounds better to me. Throughout the next decade, Philip would take control of the entire Wampanoag tribe. Tensions would rise between Philip and the settlers, especially John Sassamon, who purchased the Freetown land. Then one night, a lunar eclipse occurred, and many Native Americans in the area saw this as a sign of war, and King Philip thought no different. With the help of his sister-in-law's troops, Philip started attacking the settlers, and King Philip's war began. For 18 months, some of the bloodiest fighting ensued in and around Freetown, Massachusetts. Aaron Citado, I think, so I'd say, Macadado, a collector of stories about the war, was quoted in Dark Woods. And he said, and this is a quote, the violence was, per capita, the bloodiest in American history, with a death rate higher than that of the Civil War. There were towns in Massachusetts that were not resettled until 70 years after the war because their economic conditions were so bad. Philip would meet his end on August 12, 1675. A group of rangers, led by Captain Benjamin Church, tracked him into Misery Swamp. And I would like to find out, like, was it always called Misery Swamp, or is it called Misery Swamp because of this? Uh, but Misery Swamp is near Bristol, Rhode Island. He was shot dead by a praying Indian, quotation marks, named John Alderman. And a, a praying Indian is, a, is an old slang term for uh, a Native American who had converted to Christianity. His head would sit on a pike outside of Plymouth, Massachusetts for nearly two decades. There are many ghostly stories around Freetown that revolve around Native Americans. 
let's talk a little bit about the current Wampanoag Reservation. Like the land before, the reservation is not a place where descendants of the Wampanoag live. This reservation is used mainly for gatherings and ceremonies. In fact, it looks nothing more like a big camping spot, so if you see pictures of it, it looks like you know, it has, I don't know what you want to call them, but you know, kind of the, the, the wooden structures that they usually have like, you know, picnic tables and stuff underneath them. Things like that. It looks like a, it looks like a little park or a little campground. However, people see and hear strange things in the reservation. Take the case of Gabe and his wife Eileen. In 2000, they were driving through the state forest looking for an entrance. They came upon the reservation's visitor center first. They parked their car and got out to look around. And then they heard the beating of drums as clear as day and loud. They went searching for the source. The sound of the drumming became louder and louder as they approached the meeting place, but there was no one there, and no drums either. Just five columns of smoke, each about the size of a person. This frightened Gabe, but Eileen, his wife, calmly escorted him back to the car. The Native American spirits don't seem to be hostile, and Tim's encounter seems to support that. Tim was having a bad week, a really bad one. In order to calm himself down, he decided to ride his bike into the woods near the reservation. He mauled the dumb thing he did at work and his decision to ask his girlfriend to move out over and over in his head. And Tim went to a place he had seen before, when he had visited Rez with friends, a large circle of rocks just past the visitor center. It was quiet and peaceful. It was just what he needed. He closed his eyes, only for a minute or two, and then heard a voice, a deep, powerful voice. He could not understand what the voice was saying, but he could feel it, and from that moment on, everything seemed right. He quit his job and quickly found a much better one, and in 2006, he married that girlfriend. There is one more thing, something from the past, and something lost, that is, the wampum belt. The belt is the only thing left that tells the history of the Wampanoag before the British arrive. The only problem is, it's missing. It was taken away from Anawan, who became Sackham after Philip. And Anawan was also his like military advisor, um, his vizier, if you will, and sent back to Britain as proof of victory over the Native Americans. To this day, it has not been located, and trust me, people have tried. Perhaps if it was returned, the ghost of King Philip may stop appearing at Profile Rock. That's a little uh, foreshadowing right there, but that's just a couple... Um, of ghost stories from the Native Americans, uh, what you know, they were some light-hearted ones, I will say, nothing, you know, dark or sinister. And that, that seems to be par for the course with a lot of the Native American hauntings, but some of the other stuff isn't so, you know, isn't so helpful. But that's probably more second episode stuff. But now let's get into the Freetown State Forest and a, a little bit of what goes on in there. Freetown State Forest covers more than 5,000 acres and offers up 25 miles of hiking trails as well as horseback riding and dirt bike trails. It also has its fair share of strange sights and paranormal happenings. Let's talk about a couple, a couple few. Dighton Rock is a 40-ton boulder, and for many years it sat on the banks of the Talton River near Berkeley, Massachusetts. Technically, this is not in the state forest area, but they have a jurisdiction over it, or they did. 
For hundreds of years, it has instilled a sense of mystery to all who have seen it, and the mysterious markings and carvings that scar its surface. The stone may be the most inscribed rock in Massachusetts, perhaps in the entire country. Some of the markings provide evidence for settlements that may have existed before Columbus arrived in North America. The markings vary from letters to pictures to symbols. The markings have been attributed to the Vikings, the Italians, the Native Americans, the English, and the Portuguese. Dr. John Danforth was the first to make a sketch of the rock in 1860. He had his own idea what the mystery markings were. Danforth thought it told of a great battle between the Wampanoag and the travelers of the Taunton River. But this theory doesn't hold much water nowadays. For one, Danforth never got a chance to see all the writing on the stone. And two, Native Americans didn't and don't really use formal letters or numbers in their languages. The most noted theory on Dighton Rock is that most of the markings were put there by the Portuguese. Some of the markings bear a strong resemblance to the Portuguese cross of the Order of Christ, as well as significant dates in the Portuguese style of writing. Uh, like a font or a typeface. I really don't know how to describe it because it's not a computer, but just the way they carved it was very in their style. However, the strongest piece of evidence is a name, Miguel Cortorio, a 16th century Portuguese explorer. He came to the New World looking for his lost brother, and he never returned. So the story is, the, or the idea is that he, he used this stone, I believe, as some sort of marker. He came looking for his brother. Uh, he got lost in the area. And, you know, the stone is a way of him to be like, hey, I'm here. I was here. You know, come find me. Or this is my last will and testament. I'm writing this on this rock. Something like that. Today... Dighton Rock sits in its own enclosed museum for all to see and speculate about what it all means. However, like most things in and around Freetown, it has ties to the paranormal. It has been said that sometimes a strange shadowy figure can be seen wandering outside the museum at night. It tries to get into the building, and it runs away if called out to or chased. Uh, it's a pretty new legend though, I believe. I think it's someone mentioned it on a message board back in like you know, the, uh, the 2000s sometimes. So you know how those message board eh, experiences could be. Still, fun story. But let's talk about Profile Rock. Profile Rock is bar none the most recognizable feature in the whole forest. The rock formation is natural, but it's said by many to bear striking resemblance to Massawa, the aforementioned sactum of the Wampanoag tribe. People have claimed to see him sitting in a praying position near the rock. He was known for being a wise and resourceful man. Patrick used to visit the area around the Profile Rock with his father. His father would paint and he would play around. Later in his life, Patrick went to climbing the rock. One day, while climbing, things seemed different. I think it was the first time I knew what my father felt. All those times with him, I'd always use the place as a playground. That day, though, I think I felt what he was trying to say with all those paintings. As Patrick climbed, he looked up to see a dark-skinned man with a shaved bald head leaning over the edge of the rock with his arm extended. Patrick looked down, and then back up, and the man had vanished. Could this have been the ghost of King Philip? Legend says that Philip spent the night before his death at Profile Rock. He knew his time was growing short, and he was losing the war. Could this be why he now haunts Profile Rock? And if the wampum belt was ever returned, would he leave Profile Rock?
Lastly, I want to talk about the ledge. Its name has an ominous feel to it, and for good reason. Its actual name is Assonance Ledge. For decades, it's been the teen hangout, the place to party and drink and fish. The ledge used to be a large rock face, but chunks of it have been quarried out over the years, and now resembles more of a cliff overlooking the lake of where the quarry used to be. The Wampanoag were not fond of the area and avoided it altogether. Over the years, there have been many unexplained deaths, from drowning to falling. In 1997, Darren was fishing with some buddies when they noticed what they described as Wampanoag Native Americans. The friends watched these apparitions disappear and reappear at random spots at the ledge, each time getting further and further down towards the water. Several people have also tried to kill themselves at the ledge. The odd thing is, some of these unfortunate people seem to be in a different state of mind. There have been recounts by survivors about feeling an overwhelming pull towards the edge. Some who have jumped have had no evidence of suicidal thoughts or depression. It's as if something takes hold and compels them to jump. There's also, I didn't really get into it, but there's also some uh, uh, stories of puckwudgies tricking people over the edge. Uh, but we'll get in, uh, there's going to be an episode, I bet, once I can dig up a town about puckwudgies. We'll get into puckwudgies sometime. People have also reported seeing lights in the water below. Cindy saw one of these strange lights in 2003. While partying at the ledge, some friends and her were looking over the edge when they saw a bright orange light rise to the surface. Just before breaking the water's surface, it seemed to fall back as if it had given up. Cindy then hears a woman scream and a splash, but neither her nor any of her friends saw anyone fall or jump from the ledge. All the strange happening at Asinet's ledge may be attributed back to when the place was a quarry. Back in the early days of the quarry, an on-site blacksmith was working with explosives. It was too close to where they housed the dynamite for blasting and caused a massive explosion. The blast killed several men and forced the quarry to shut down. And I want to jump back to uh, a story about Darren and his fishing buddies seeing the Native American ghost. Uh, it, it's pointed out in the book, and this makes a little—this makes a lot of sense. That this—they if he saw these things, they probably weren't the ghost of Native Americans because one, they didn't hang out there, and two, you know, when they were around, it wasn't a ledge. It wasn't a ledge until the quarry came in and blasted it into a ledge. Before that, it was just kind of a sheer rock face. So for them to kind of be haunting this this edge of the ledge going down towards the water, it just wasn't there. It doesn't make any sense. So could it be more of, maybe they didn't see Native Americans. Maybe they saw the ghost of a couple of quarrymen who lost their lives in this explosion. And that is couple, actually not a couple, a few of the more interesting spots in the Freetown uh, State Forest. And we'll, there'll be some more Freetown State Forest talk in the next episode, I believe. So we're not, we're not leaving quite yet, but we're going to wrap up this segment of the show and we're going to come back after the break with the local headlines, of course.
And we've got uh, a few local headline stories again this week. This first one is from the Daily Mail, so take it as you will. But I did see it pop up on other places. Uh, the headline reads, What on earth is that? Man is baffled to find a bizarre alien-like winged creature crawling across the ceiling in Indonesia. Uh, this is written by Tim Stickings for Mail Online. This bizarre creature caused bafflement at a home in Indonesia after it was seen crawling across the ceiling. Homeowner Hari Taho noticed the alien-like being scurrying across the ceiling in Bali last month. It had two wings, four tentacles of varying lengths, and appeared as though it was moving upside down with its legs holding onto the ceiling. Hari said the creature seemed to be looking for a safe place to stay because it had been rainy that night. He said, I will let it stay in my house, but only for the night. I don't want it to scare my guest away. Hari said he had been unable to identify the winged critter, but joked that it looked like an alien. He added, It's not something I've ever seen before, and I don't think it comes from the neighborhood. The answer remains unclear, but it could be part of a family of moths called the Arachnidae, I think. It appeared to share certain characteristics with a species called Cretanoas gangus, which is native to Southeast Asia and Australia. Like the mysterious creature, they have wings and four tentacles known as scent organs that are used to produce pheromones, a type of chemical substance, in a bid to attract mates. Footage of a similarly creepy creature emerged in Australia in 2017 and again appeared to be a Cretatonus gangus moth. And of course, I'll link to the show notes so you guys can go to the story because it does have uh, pictures and it does have a video of it and I don't know, it could be this moth they claim it almost almost it also kind of resembles it's like some maybe a moth that has some sort of parasite I don't know if you've ever seen those videos of like the praying mantis and it's dead and like all of a sudden this black long worm starts coming out of it it's not like that at all I mean this thing does have like fuzzy tentacles coming out of it uh, if it's a moth, I don't even know how it flies. I mean, the thing, the tentacles and stuff are like on top of its wings, so maybe it's some sort of mutation, maybe some sort of parasite, or it is this this crazy moth that they say that it is. But check it out. And this next story comes from Wavy.com. The headline reads: Her eyes were completely black. Virginia family fends off naked woman who claimed to be the devil. This is by Taylor Cunningham and uh, Dean Marishi. WRIC. Chesterfield County, Virginia. WRIC. A Chesterfield family spoke with 8 News on Friday after fending off a naked intruder who broke into their home on South Twilight Lane the night before. The intruder claimed to be the devil and attacked the family, prompting the homeowner to fire 39 rounds. The incident was a traumatic experience for Lewis's family's first night in their brand new home. She was in to kill us, Melissa Lewis said. That was her almighty to kill us. She attacked us, and I held her down and just kept punching her and punching her as hard as I possibly could. The Lewis's dream home now looks like a war zone, with blood soaked into the carpet, the walls and windows riddled with bullets and shell casings scattered all over. I said, who are you, Lewis's husband, who do not wish to go on camera, explained. She said, I need your help. Please help me. I said, get out of my house. And she goes, I'm the devil. The homeowner says the woman, who had a blue ponytail, broke into the basement around 10.30 p.m. on July 4th. The family says she was laughing menacingly and refused to leave. She looked possessed. Her eyes were completely black, like saucers, and she was laughing like it was a joke, Lewis's husband told 8 News. 
Fearing for her life, the father of three grabbed his pistol and gave a verbal warning to the woman. With his family sleeping upstairs, he opened fire on the intruder. Lewis said the woman aggressively charged him with superhuman strength. She was not stopping, he said. She had the strength of four grown men. When he ran out of bullets, Lewis began throwing furniture at her. His wife and children eventually jumped in and attempted to stop the woman. The intruder didn't stop until one of the children, Lewis's 12-year-old son Logan, shoved a wrench into her neck. Police arrested the intruder and she is being treated and evaluated at the hospital. The Lewis family left with bruises and bite marks. I'm scared to go in there. I won't even go to any room by myself. I'm terrified, M. Lewis said. Detectives told the family that the suspect lives nearby and will eventually be charged with robbery, breaking and entering, and attempted murder. She is currently in the ICU with severe head trauma. And once again, a link. There are pictures on the side of broken windows and just... I mean, it looks like someone took, like, a hammer, like, and just all over the walls. Uh, moved in on July 4th, and one night in the house, and that's what happened. And this last one is from uh, MysteriousUniverse.org by Paul Seaburn. Giant mysterious creature reported in Lake Michigan during a storm. When it comes to compelling a list of monsters residing in the five Great Lakes, fans of Lake Michigan usually respond with some comment about the great fishing, which it has, or change the subject to the Michigan Dogman. That's because Lake Michigan, and there will be a Michigan Dogman episode, by the way. That's because Lake Michigan has no famous monsters. Just a few rumors. It's so bad that the Lake Michigan Monster 2018 film is more comedy than horror. All of this may soon change. With an eerie, not eerie like the lake is how they're doing it, video from a closed circuit camera on Lake Michigan Pier showing what looks like a giant sea monster or serpent trapped near a lighthouse during a severe storm before finally freeing itself and swimming off. A real Lake Michigan monster, aquatic dog bear, the world's largest blob of seaweed? Michigan resident Tim Wenzel posted the video on his Facebook page, hoping for help in identifying what he called the Lake Ness Monster. For perspective on its size, the lighthouse in the video is, uh, I'm going to butcher this, is the Charlevoix South Pier Lighthouse. Maybe I didn't butcher it. I might have have pulled that off. I don't think I did that. A lighted landmark for Lake Michigan boats looking for the channel to round the lake and Lake Charleville. The first wooden lighthouse was built there in 1885 and the current steel structure was built in 1948 and is 41 feet, 12 and a half meters high. Wenzel was apparently watching the live video stream provided by WWMT and Horizon Broadband live stream service on June 13th because he was a self-described storm geek and small sailboat skipper. After posting the video on Facebook, Wenzel received a number of serious and nonsensical suggestions as to what the monster might be. He agrees with many who thought it was a giant lake sturgeon, which can weigh up to 200 pounds and reach a length of 7 feet. While sturgeons are known to be flexible, the creature in the video seems to be pretty bendable and far longer than 7 feet. This leads some, including Dr. Pete God, I thought that that said Pete Vankman. Pete Van Varken, the Dickman Road Veterinary Clinic in Battle Creek, interviewed by Kalamazoo Radio Station K102.5, to suggest it was a giant eel, especially after seeing it seemingly slither through the barrier and appear to dive after reaching the other side. There are many species of eels and lampreys, both native and invasive, living in Lake Michigan. However, even the sea lamprey only reaches 4 feet, 1.2 meters in length, and the thing in the video appears larger. So what was this thing in Tim Wenzel's video? A mutant lamprey or sturgeon? 
an unidentifiable blob of seaweed or trash, something else, something worse, something at least worthy of the name Lake Michigan Monster, and a better movie. And there we go, those were our local headlines for uh, this week, for episode 1.09. And to finish out the show, we're going to return really quick with a couple of listener stories. Tonight I have two short and sweet listener stories to share with you. Uh, the first one I got uh, a couple few weeks ago uh, from the Facebook page, and uh, just got around to doing it. It's been sitting, been sitting in the listener story bank for a little while, but we're ready to break it out. And this is from William McDowell, and he lives in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. Uh, Last night I was walking along the new levee in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, between the Black Diamond Bridge and the Market Street Bridge magnet fishing and about 25 feet ahead of me I heard a huge commotion in the water. I was using my phone so I could not spotlight the beast but I seen the outline of him reflecting off the city lights. This thing made one thrust of its body and it was enough power to get him to the middle of the river and then splash twice in the middle making a loud commotion of just sheer power. I could tell just by the riptide that this thing had to be 15 to 20 feet. That was incredible and completely unexplainable size. And the next one, I guess, is also from from Facebook. Facebook. Mm, it's so much better than Facebook. Facebook, and this is a, a little tale from Bryson Summers. Uh, he wrote me, We have the Witch's Circle in Daleville, Indiana. I don't know if people still go there or not, but when I was in high school, it was super creepy. And then he directed me to a blog spot, blog post, that talks about it a little bit, and, uh, has some pictures of it, so I'll link that in the show notes so you can take a look at the pictures. But this is what the the blog post uh, says about the witch's circle. It is said that people have seen outlines of a white woman figure here. There is also a myth that the red splatter on the road is where someone was murdered, but people say it's just paint. Also, it is said that an old man that used to live close to the witch's circle still haunts the place today, and it is said that the witches still go there to do witchcraft. It is said that if you walk in a straight line past the gravestones, you will count 13 headstones. But when you walk back, you only count 12. Just a legend. My sister said it happened to her. And when she went to the witch's circle, she heard a little girl whispering. But she was with her boyfriend and three other people. If you go to the witch's circle, definitely worth the trip. You just gotta watch out for police when you go at night. They will get you for trespassing. But beware of the owner. He has dogs and lets them loose if he believes people are here because they are trespassing. There you go, a couple more of our own small town secrets. Uh, short and sweet, but I liked both of them. And uh, we're going to wrap up the show, I think. So, yeah, that is episode 1.09, the first part of the two-part season finale of season one. Uh, once again, if you like the show, if you're enjoying the show, please rate, review, subscribe on your podcatcher of choice especially if it's itunes uh if you like the show and you want to support it you don't want to spend any money the best way to do it is just to tell people share it on social media tell a friend word of mouth just you know if if everyone told one other person to listen to it it would you know a thing would happen i don't know butterfly wings and tsunamis or something and we'd get a bunch of listens um but 
that would help out the show a lot. If you want to support the show and possibly spend some money, uh, go over to stscast.com. There is a merch tab full of t-shirts and apparel and some stickers and all sorts of stuff. Also on STScast, you can do a bunch of other stuff. You can look at the show notes for pictures and links to everything that we've talked about. You can find a submission form at the bottom of the main page to submit your own small town secret. You can do it that way, or you can get on me on social media if you have a, a story to share, and I'll get the social media in a second. Uh, actually, at the bottom of the page, there's also show, so, social media links. So, social media, like I just mentioned, social media. Hey, everyone, social media. Uh, we are at, we are, who's we? I am at STScast, uh, both on Facebook and Twitter. Twitter's where I'm most active, so that's at STScast for both of those. Uh, I'm also on Instagram, and this is the different one. This one is uh, STScast.gram. Uh, once again, most of the time you can find the pictures that I post on the website also on Instagram in a story or in a post or something. But that's the best way to really keep a track of the show, especially on Twitter. Twitter is where I'm always kind of at. And yeah, that is, I think, pretty much a wrap for this episode. We'll be back with episode 10 in a couple of weeks. We're going to talk uh, some more Freetown, Massachusetts. We're going to get into some other stuff about the area. I think it's going to be a fun season finale. And then after that, I'm going to take a couple few weeks off, like an extra week, so that it'll, and I'll let everyone know what it's going to be and what's going on. But until then, remember, every town has a secret. What is yours? Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.